This episode of the Filmmaker Mixer podcast is sponsored by Reed's Cleaners in Austin, Texas. We launder everything but money. This episode is also sponsored by Piers Henry Headshots, shining the spotlight on you. Welcome to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm joined alongside my co-host, Jeff, as always. Today, we have on action filmmaker, Jonathan Salemi. Jonathan talks about his new indie action thriller, The Last Deal. Hello, everybody. This is the Filmmaker Mixer podcast. Uh, and you know, Andrew, uh, we are actually into season three now. Can you believe that? I cannot. And we've had the opportunity to chat with some amazing filmmakers. So any of you listening who are new to the show, you know, go back and check out seasons one and two. Listening to these folks is it's like a mini film school. Um, and that's what you know, Andrew and I like about the show. We get to talk about all the different elements of filmmaking. We talk about distribution and festivals and, and acting and effects. And today we get to talk about action films. <laughs> Our guest is Jonathan Salemi. Jonathan is a feature film producer and director. His latest film is the crime thriller The Last Deal, which opened in theaters across the U.S. and then was featured in the New York Times' five action films to stream now, which is a pretty big deal. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So, i got to ask you, Jonathan, in the trivia section of your IMDb page, it says you would convince your fifth grade teacher to let you turn in movies that you made with, I guess, with your father's video camera instead of actually writing papers for class. So I'm, I'm presuming, presuming you fell in love with filmmaking at a, at an early age as a kid. So tell us about that. Yeah, no, it's very true. So when I was a young kid, um, little boy, like maybe four or five years old, my father had a super eight millimeter camera and he would record family home movies, you know, so you have that, uh, like non-sync, no dialogue home movies where everyone's like waving at the camera and he would project them <laughs> on the living room wall. And I just remember like, I'm, I, I have a nephew and niece right now and my niece is like four and then nephew's like six. And I, I can picture them like, and I can see it in myself, like when I was four or five, just being mesmerized by this, by this moving image on the living room wall. And I was always asking to watch it again and again and again and again, and my dad would do it. And then when I got older, he then uh, transitioned to a VHS, you know, like the the Marty McFly one that he had over his shoulder. <laughs> and uh, so I was maybe around like nine or 10. And then he would let me operate that. And I would make like stop motion G.I. Joe films and stuff like that and use my sisters and the neighborhood kids. And it could only edit in camera. So I didn't do any like outside editing because I'm 10 years old. So I don't know about that stuff. Sure. And, um, and so what ended up happening, cause I was making these GI Joe things, I was asking my fifth grade teacher an assignment. And I asked if I could make it into a movie instead of a paper. And he, and he was like, yeah, sure. And so they rolled out that, that dinosaur, uh, TV on the stage, you probably see the memes every now and then, like, you know, you're an eighties kid when, when this gets rolled out and he'd roll it out and it was great. Like like the class would light up and love watching it. And I did it again and again. And, um, you know, it was just so cool. Like I did it and seeing the reaction of my classmates was always fun. So you had your own, uh, your own screenings and your own uh, private audience there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that is cool. So staying out early in your career, 
I saw you got to start as an intern at Sony Pictures working for Douglas Wick, who produced Gladiator and The Great Gatsby, among other many other films. How did you get that internship and what was it like suddenly being at a studio like Sony, getting your feet wet in the business? Yeah, it was very cool. Like, I don't know if I would have gotten that opportunity now, just how competitive things are with getting into college and internships and stuff. But I, I, I'm from Boston, Mass. I went to high school there. I went to college there. Little small state school called Salem State University. Not a filmmaking school at all. I didn't study filmmaking, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. My parents were like, hey, get a real diploma and then you can move to California. So I, I moved to LA after I graduated and I applied. There was like a list back then called, I forget what it, what it was. It was either the UTA list or something like that. It was like a list passed around through the agencies. And it was all the things that were being, that were hiring at the time. At the very end of the list, I totally forgot about this. It's been years since I told this, but like at the end of the list is all the internships. And so I was applying to the internships and I got called in um, by Doug's assistant and they interviewed me and I got it. Like, and the reason why I mentioned the state school and stuff like that is because Doug's working at Sony Pictures and he's in the reporter for like top 25 producers at the time. Like normally people in my shoes, my background wouldn't get that. And it would go to like USC or Chapman or UCLA or, or other NYU and I got it. Um, which was awesome. And it was an amazing experience. And I'd be dropping off packages to like Amy Pascal and uh, Spider-Man came up at the time and um, just meeting like Adam Sandler had a production building or office next door to us. So I would see him, say hi to him. He'd be walking his his dog Meatball and um, just a really cool experience. So did you ever think not going to film school would be a problem then? Because as you said, you kind of knew you wanted to do filmmaking or was it because you already had a background in filmmaking as a kid, like you said, showing uh, films off to your class that you were pretty confident that you could still break into the industry? Like looking back, I, I it would have been nice to have gone to film school just to learn some things um, that I learned when I made my first movie. But like when, once I was like, when when I made that first film, once I I was in that process, I it it pretty much superseded film school. So that was my film school. So I I don't feel like I lost anything. Yeah, I mean, what was the first film then that you made that kind of gave you that experience? Yeah, just so when I was interning at Red Wagon, which is Doug's production company, um, I I wanted to to start getting into the directing business like actually making a movie and the best way to do that is starting with a short so i joined uh, a group of filmmakers i think they're called group 101 i have no idea if they're still around but their thing is they make a short film every month and then based on a theme and then everyone in that in that group would critique the movie and give feedback so a really great positive environment that people could work in and feel safe and so the first theme came about and and I was working on it as a short and being the overambitious visions of grandeur person that I am or delusions of grandeur um, I was like hey I, let's make this into a feature instead and and so I had that idea and went full throttle and got a, a grant from Panavision so I shot with Panavision cameras and lenses and then 
got uh, sponsored by Kodak. So I shot with Kodak Film. Wow. For, and what, what did you shoot? Uh, Super 16 or 35? What did you shoot? Super 16. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, was a, it was right at the point where like DSLRs were coming out and people were making their movies on Canons and 5Ds, I think, at the time and stuff like that. But I didn't. I didn't quite like the way the medium looked. It didn't. It didn't look to me like like a feature film that I knew when I grew up on. So for me, like shooting on film at that time was not a question. It was right at the point where like where like the whole industry was was switching to digital, and um, I hung on to film for a little bit longer because the the film I made after that was a short, and I shot that Super 16, and then after that I shot Red, and it didn't look back. I, I want to dig into that a little bit later on the technology, but um, before we do that, uh, I've got another question. So you've also done some TV work, um, uh, producing on uh, the show Married at First Sight. Um, obviously, TV and feature films are different animals, but I'm curious as a producer um, on TV versus you know producing your your independent films, what do you think the different challenges are between film and television? It's a good question. I mean. I feel in some ways film is a little more controlled in the sense that I have the screenplay. You go into the day with uh, your blocking and knowledge of what you're going to make. And then when you go into post, you kind of know what you have. And, and things don't stray too far from those three, you know, whereas in TV, especially what you're referring to is unscripted TV. So you don't really you come in with the same preparation and, and the same goals, but you don't really know what's going to happen or what storylines are going to take place. And in that sense, it's almost like a documentary um, that you're, go you're going into the day like, hey, I know I'm going to put these couples together and then have them do this uh, activity and they're going to address X, Y, Z that's going on in their relationship. But I have no idea what they're going to do. I can only like put them into an environment where it'll be a catalyst for them to do something. And then, and then, yeah. And, and then the post of that, they're just taking those storylines and making it work. So for me, I think that's the difference. It's a little bit more wild West documentary with TV. It's fun. And, and the film world um, is a lot more contained. You know, I'm curious about that on the reality TV side. So um, it sounds like for the most part, you figure out the story in the edit and so your job as a, as a producer is to queue up situations that I suppose can create conflict or create drama. Do you, do you have a general idea of how you want the story to go within a framework or is it just basically whatever happens, happens? Uh, a little bit of both. So like in terms of that show, um, each field team is assigned a couple and, and you're given a couple and they just got married so, so yeah, so the, the basic genesis behind that show is is they're literally married at first sight. Like that's the log line, that's the pitch, that's the show. Um, and so you you get that couple, they just met, and you know, there's gonna be different conflicts, like you said, within that relationship. And you wanna get them to engage. And so you need them to go into activities that will highlight their um partnership or teamsmanship. Like whether it be like a baking challenge or or whitewater rafting or something like that, and in doing that, you'll naturally bring out people's uh, own honest qualities, or or at least that's what you're hoping. And um and and yeah, you're trying to put them, you know, like it's. And I'm being truthfully honest. 
you're putting them in situations where you're hoping that conflict or something amazing will happen, you know, and then as their story develops and as they start going along that chain of, of you're seeing like who this person is and what they're doing, then you're putting them in situations that can bring that out or address it, you know, like, Hey, last night, uh, Jeff said that he didn't want to help you bake the cookies because, because you're stubborn. Like, what, what, what did that mean to you? And, 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 and then they're like, yeah, blah, blah. And, and, so, and so you're trying to put them in those situations. And then that's why when you're watching these Bravo shows, especially and all that stuff, you see them talking or Jersey Shore, you see them talking one on one with the producer and they're bringing out this, the story that they're going after. And then you'll see them cut into the activities that they're doing. And you're hoping that part of that will come out, you know, that's interesting. And and um, what's the turnaround time on a show like that? I mean, how how quickly are you shooting and and kicking these these uh, things out for uh, for broadcast? They're pretty fast. I think um, I I want to say less than six months. So the moment you're shooting it to the finished product is somewhere less than six months, depending on on the show. And and I know my wife watches- is that is that is that for a season or when you say um, six months. Yeah, for I think per season because I I know like the shows are released chronologically, so it's not like it's not like a lot of your uh, streaming shows right now where they have all the episodes cut and they put them out at one time. Like a lot of these shows, they're shooting them as they go and and cutting them as they go. So you know, like you're looking at at the shows have their own deadline that you know they're releasing episode one, two, three, four, five, but they may not have six, seven, eight, nine cut yet. So they're all done in that order. Well, speaking of like fast turnaround times, I think I read that your uh, latest film, The Last Deal, had happened pretty fast as well. I think, you know, you had the idea and then less than a year later you were shooting. So, you know, how did that get off the ground so fast? Yeah, I mean, uh, that was a definite preparation meeting opportunity. Um, So I had the idea for the movie in October of 2019. and I basically had a checklist of all the things that I wanted to put into a movie because I didn't, I wasn't getting the director opportunities that I was looking for, but I had marijuana fields, airplanes, stunt performers, and locations in Los Angeles, amongst other things. And so I watched a movie from the 70s, John Cassavetes film, and that inspired me to make The Last Deal and basically put it in the same world that Cassavetes did with his main character. So I... It was like October 20th, 2019. I watched the movie. I wrote an outline the next day, gave it to a couple of friends. They said, hey, this is pretty good. I'm like, okay, great. I moved it along, sent it to my producer friend, Carl Safarlio, who's the producer in The Last Deal as well. He liked it a lot. I was like, okay, let me make this into an outline, made it into an outline. And I had the first draft of that script in January. And then being, again, the overambitious person that I am, I was like, okay, well, this is the film I'm going to go make. Um, And I'm going to go make it in April. And this is before the pandemic actually started bearing its head. So now we're in March. The pandemic started. It pushed my dates to August. And and now we're shooting in August. So from the idea with zero on the page from October to August is about 10 months. And how difficult was it to to raise the money for the film? Um, so the the idea that I had before that all started was what I was describing was this commercial film that I could make because I wasn't getting director opportunities. And I was like, hey, you know what? What I can do is I can put 
probably about 30 to 50 grand of my own into the film, whether that's my own cash, maybe take out a loan here or there or something like that. Um, and I can make up my feature for $50,000 at most. And that's the plan. And I'm going to shoot in April no matter what. So that that was the idea that I I had all of 2019 and maybe later 2018. And then when that idea came in, in October 2019, I was like, okay, that's the film. That's the dollar amount. Let's go. Um, but what ended up happening was was the film got larger than I could have imagined. I got Anthony Molinari in as the lead actor and and things just started growing that the 50 grand that I had was like, okay, well, this is going to get me somewhat through production, but I'm going to have to raise more. And and more people started getting their eyes on the project. And and I basically, I didn't have any pauses from uh, from writing to the final finished film. And, and that was really nice because we had investors lined up along the way. So once I finished shooting the film, I then cut the first the first version myself i did the first draft of the film uh the rough cut and then i got 10 or 12 or fifteen thousand dollars, and i was able to bring my editor aboard and he took it from there and then we were able to get more for the vfx and it just all moved along rather seamlessly that this fifty thousand dollar idea grew into like this three hundred thousand dollar film so so just so i'm clear you're saying that you shot it for the 50k and then, I mean, you put all that money into the shoot and then you raise more money for the post. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. So the 50K, it ended up costing more than the 50K for the actual production. 50K it looks was, amazing. It, lo- it looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, I got Dominic Lopez, who's from Texas. Um, he DP'd it and just, he owned the red um, and just did an amazing job. Um, and I've been making movies now for about 15 years. So, so I had the experience behind me of, of filmmaking and, and all of that sort. So you could make a high end product. Um, but yeah, the 50 grand, I, it didn't cover all of production. So I ended up having to raise a bunch more. Um, but that all came in like before we started. So we just shot, I think like. 16 days of principal. So we started in August, shot for three weeks. And then I knew because I didn't have a large, I didn't have a line producer in the film or a producer doing the schedule and it was all me doing it. And it's a very ambitious act taking on that responsibility as well. Like all of the producing, I had producers, but the a bulk of a lot of it was on my shoulders. And in and, and doing that, um, I knew the seams would fall off the boat after week three. So I couldn't shoot it all in one sitting. So what I did was I was like, hey, I shoot the first three weeks. I know I can make it tight, make it right, instead of like making it crappy after like the third week. Cause I noticed come like when we were in the third week of shooting, I noticed some of the seams of the boat were coming loose. Uh, and so we ended up shooting again, um, which was all planned that I would shoot a few more times in, in 2020. So I shot in November for a weekend. I think we shot in December for a weekend and then shot a couple weekends in like February, March of 2021. And then I did my, my B roll, um, for the very last couple of days of shooting that we went around town and, and shot all of that. So that was all spaced out and that worked out well with the budgeting and, and then the money that was coming in throughout the, the entire life of the film. 
So knock on wood right now, I, I saw The Last Deal has 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a great accomplishment. And I'm curious how much that means to you as a filmmaker, or if that's something you kind of take into account when you're writing or shooting a movie versus just wanting to make something entertaining for the mass audience, if that makes sense. It does. And it's very cool. It's very humbling that um, people watched it and, and, and saw what we were trying to make and understood it. And it's also, it's very humbling as well to make a this low budget indie film that also gets in the big stage. Like we were in stars now. So, you know, that's opening up a whole other audience that's used to high budget cinematic films. And now they're seeing this lower budgeted indie thriller. And it's humbling seeing the response there, which has been very receptive. But overall, yeah, it's been very, um, humbling and then the new york times one like i thought that was a joke so i got that email on like a sunday night and i'm in my office at home and i get the email and i'm like this person is obviously like scamming me or something like that and <laughs> and i go downstairs because they they're like hey we're doing this article and we just need some pictures i'm like okay and so i go downstairs to my wife i was like yeah i just got an email it's from a gmail but it's from the new york times and I don't know if this is real and it's going to come out on Friday. And so I basically just kept it under my hat all week. And then <laughs> Thursday night, I went to bed and I was like, all right, well, I'll wake up and we'll see what happens. And I woke up early on Friday morning at like 5 a.m. and I'm clicking refresh. I'm like, uh, whatever. And then I woke up and then I had all these texts and stuff like that. I was like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so this is a little bit more of a technical question, but something that's still maybe interesting for uh, filmmakers trying to break into the industry, which you had said the last deal is an indie film, low budget. And I'm curious, was that like a SAG micro budget or low budget? Was it non-union or how did that all work out? Yeah, so it's SAG micro. So you're doing it on the very uh, lower scale for for SAG. Um, and fortunately at the time we did it like um, before any new contracts got made or anything like that with SAG. And then as far as like everyone behind the camera, you, you can't afford any like IATSE or anything like that. So, um, and then I'm not in the DGA or, or WGGA. So the only one you, you have to do or can do is SAG. And, you know, the other thing is I noticed that you had a lot of locations. So um, that had to be crazy on your, on your budget and your schedule because um, you were shooting all over the place. Right. So that, that was one of the parts for me um, that when I wrote the script, so I wrote the script very much that it would look like a, a bigger film. I didn't want to make an indie that I only had like two or three locations and we're seeing the same thing over and over again. When I, when I went into the screenplay, I was like, hey, I need to do these certain things. I need to check off these boxes for things that I want. And for one of them, I wanted to make like, as weird as it may sound, like this this Christopher Nolan indie film where like you're, you're in Rome, you're buying the drugs in India, you are, you're now in, in Australia and they're just going around the world, like mission impossible. Cause eventually like those are the films I would love to make one day. And I was like, well, let's do that here, but let's do it within Los Angeles and Southern California. So I threw in as many locations as I possibly could, all these cool locations that I had in mind, and then, yeah, then there's the challenge of, of the scheduling and making it all happen. So the schedule was one of the things that took, took me one of the longest times to do before we started to shoot, just making sure I could do it. And I knew 
from my own experience, like, hey, this is how long I, I need in a certain scene. Like I can do a scene in three or four hours and I can jump around from from this point in Burbank to this point in Glendale to this point um, in Sherman Oaks if needed. And, and that's the way I built each day was like that. And when Anthony came aboard, I was like, hey, this is the project we're doing. This is the way logistically it's going to be shot. And I did that with every actor, all the crew that everyone knew, like this was what we had in store. Um, and everyone was aboard. And I think, I think because of the pandemic and the lockdowns, it helped with that too, that no one had any work. We we're all unemployed at the time. Um, and then, yeah, you bake, you bake in all those locations, you make your schedule. It's incredibly ambitious, very, very ambitious. I think there's over 60 locations um, and maybe four days of, we shot for 27 days. Maybe four of those days were only in one location. The rest of the days were either in two, three, maybe even four. We recently interviewed a, a filmmaker called David uh, Miller recently, and he had talked about he was shooting, he lived, grew up in New York and was just shooting a short film uh, either right towards the end of college or after college. And he wanted to shoot at a park and he got kicked out. So he decided to rebuild the sidewalk in his bedroom and like pour okay. concrete in his bedroom to make a sidewalk. And that brings me to like, I believe this, you know, this was a true indie. Uh, the last deal was a true indie movie itself because you were shooting without any permits. So I'm curious if there was any problem solving that had to go on there or anything, uh, any good stories. Yeah. So we definitely have run-ins with the cops, um, but that's all like baked in and you plan on that. So like every day, first thing on set um, before we started the day, because um, you're there's so many speaking roles. I introduce myself again. I'm like, hey, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, we are an indie shoot. We're a gorilla. Um, if the police come, do not engage. Just point them towards me. Be very respectful and and we'll, we'll sort it out and keep it very safe. And and that's what we did. Anytime the police came, it always funneled to me. Every, the set was very organized for being such a skeleton crew. And the police would see that and we weren't disturbing anyone and they would let us go. And the the thing that I knew in my head shooting gorilla in the past was the police don't get called unless someone, well, they don't get called unless someone calls them, of course. But like, unless there's like a complaint, they won't necessarily shut you down unless like you're just being completely like, like ignorant and stuff like that. So I knew if the police came, let me back up. I knew I could start shooting. I would probably have anywhere from a half hour to an hour before the police came. And so I could set up <laughs> blocking, do all of that. And then I knew the police would leave and then I would shoot again. And I would have about an hour or so before they came back, you know, um, which would give me two hours no matter what. So if I'm in this specific location, I knew I would have at least two hours to shoot um, before they were like, we're going to arrest you if you don't leave because you can't do it a third time. Fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I never had to do it that the police left and then came back. Fortunately, I would talk to them each time and um, they were very receptive and cool. But what I also do is every location I go to, whoever is within an eye shot or an air shot, I go to them, I introduce myself and I tell them what I'm doing and I tell them I'm making a, a, a YouTube video. That's a lie, of course, but I'm like, yeah, I'm making a YouTube video. We're not doing anything with guns or anything like that. And we're going to be out of here soon. And surprisingly, people are very receptive towards that. 
And and that's the way we did it. And and it, it lowers your chance of people calling the police. You know, I, I remember doing a low budget film once and we always uh, kept home baked cookies with us because we got, we got more favors on locations by giving people cookies than uh, giving them money. But uh, so a little, little, uh, little tip there, maybe that, that'll help. Um, I'm curious. So um, since you're doing a, a, a low budget film, a lot of times when I'm developing a, a shooting schedule, I have like my A scenes, the ones I want to spend time on, you know, more money, more time, my B scenes, which are kind of in the middle and my C scenes, which are the ones I want to get, you know, down and dirty and do quickly. Do you do the same thing? Do you prioritize your shoot? I don't know if I do it sort of like that. What I, I think I, what I do is um, like thinking back, I'm basically just trying to group things together, like group locations together and then get the actors out as soon as possible. Meaning like, like in the context of the days of the shoot. So like we have a lot of actors in here, like with Salah Baker who works a lot. So I want to basically prioritize all his scenes as early as possible in the shoot. So this way he's done, you know, and then I have that actor finished. His scenes are done. Same with like Mike Ferguson. He works a lot. Anthony, excuse me, he he works a ton. Um, but, you know, he's the lead actor, so committed to it. So he's in every scene. But I, being low budget, I think you prioritize like that to make sure like you can X each actor off. You don't want to like, on a 27 day shoot with your actor who's only for four days, like the first three days, and then hold off till day 26. Right. Um, it's just very important to like get as much done and get as many of them done as possible. So this way you never have to go back to that person again. Um, because you can you can find yourself in situations where it's the end of the day, you have a few shots left, and it's with this actor, and it's his last day. You're like, oh, I'll pick it up later. You, it's so important to not do that. Just shoot it. Just get what you need, even if the, even if like the lights are low and the sun is down, and like bump your iris all the way up and just get it done. Just shoot it. You can always reshoot that if need be, but you don't want to have to go back and bring someone back in. Staying on the cast subject, I'm curious, how did you find them? Were they actors you had worked with in the past, or did you use a casting director? Uh, no casting director. Can't afford it. So um, what we did was we used LA Casting um, and in Breakdown Services, which I forget what they're technically called. But um, yeah, yeah, for people yeah. who who may not know what that is, why don't you break that down exactly how that works? Yeah, so a lot of your CDs, your casting directors uh, will put roles up on Breakdown, um, and that everyone sees it, all the agents, the managers, all that. And so we put our casting up on there. And then we put it on LA Casting. And then Aaron Roberts, who's one of the uh, producers in the movie, um, he basically focused on just the casting. And so he was there um, bringing in a lot of the, the roles that had one line or day players and stuff like that. For the main roles, um, I got Anthony from our producer, Carl, and I got Sala Baker from Anthony. And then Jeffrey, um, who plays Tabitha, she came from LA Casting or Breakdown. Mr. who plays Bobby came from LA Casting or Breakdown. Mike Ferguson came from LA Casting or Breakdown. So a lot of them were coming from there. And then um, we were doing our auditions on Zoom. So it was a bit like in 2020 was a kind of like, I think the beginning of where auditions were just taking place on Zoom. And we we're doing our auditions on Zoom. And 
um, it was great. We could get all these people to come in and we got actors that we wouldn't normally get because of the, the lockdowns. So Jonathan, I know you featured a lot of different locations uh, throughout your movie. Like you said, you wanted to make it look expensive, even though you didn't want to spend the money from marijuana fields to inside planes. So I'm curious how you pulled that all off. Yeah, so a lot of that is just favors. And um, when I had that checklist of, of things that I want to include, it was all the things I had around me that I could use in the movie to boost the production value as well. So I, I had um, or have a few friends that work in cannabis, like whether the dispensary or growers that I could use in the movie. And so that's what I used for my backdrop, for my story, because I, I knew a lot about the cannabis industry from, from trading cannabis stocks and then my friends that that created a very unique original story or backdrop that we haven't seen before. You know, like like this person with their back against the wall and they owe money. We've seen that a ton of times, but you know, you change the world up and um, you at least present something new for the audience. Uh, the airplanes came about from my buddy Hunter Rogue, who's a pilot. He knew one of the pilots out in Santa Paula that we could shoot on the tarmac. We could go up in the plane like that's like production value plus i had a version of the screenplay where i actually had like this like um point break kind of scene where where vince was the main character is shot in the stomach and he's in the door of the plane is open and they're gonna have to skydive down or something like that because i had like skydiving friends too and stuff like that but you're basically like when you're making these low budget films, you don't want like people are very hip to, to the game. People are watching the MCU and the DC universe. They're watching these big films and, and they know what big films look like that you don't want to you want to put yourself ahead that you're at least like look like you're trying that people are like, oh, yeah, this was much different than other low budget indies that we've watched. So and and for me, like it's a career choice and I'm I'm. I'm looking to keep moving up in this career. And these are the people that I want to work with, like Anthony Bolinari and, and Sala and the entire cast. And you're looking at directors and producers that are making huge films like Doug Wick, who I interned for, who did end up watch, who did watch the movie. I emailed him when the film got distribution and um, he watched the movie and was super excited and he called me and so grateful and honored that he did that. And those are people that you're looking to keep your film career moving up and, and you're not only impressing the audience, but it's also a business thing that you're, you got to impress your, your next employer. Well, you, you went out, you, you know, got some money, you got it started, you went into production, uh, you got more money to finish it up. You got great production value. So the next big step is distribution. How did you manage that? Yeah. So um, that's its own animal as well. And Fortunately, I had a, some experience working within that world and seeing how it worked with my friends and and you know pitching other films um, and stuff like that and seeing how that works out. So I actually um, and it is probably is very important for all filmmakers is is it's very exciting to shoot a movie, but you really need to look at and be fully invested in all the stages of that film, and that's that's your pre-production, that's your production, that's your post your marketing, your distribution, like you can't put too many balls in one court there because your weakest chain will show. And, and I see a lot of times people don't think about the marketing and this is for like first time filmmakers or they don't think about distribution and they can cut themselves short 
I've done it myself. So, you know, I'm talking from experience from that first film, Anti Up. Like, I'm just so excited about making a movie that I didn't really think about the marketing too much. I didn't really think about the distribution. So, yeah, I failed there on my first film and I, and I learned that. So, when it came time for distribution, the moment I had the finished script for the last deal, I was trying to sell that script. Oh, I was interesting. Like, yeah. I was like, I know I can shoot this myself, but let's see if I can make money, sell the script, and I'll make another film. I have other ideas for other movies. I wrote the script and like the first draft and like blank page, like two months. And I had the final draft in six months. Like I wrote this thing that fast. I can do it again. Let's try to sell this and make another one. And and I made a lot of connections there with different sales reps and distributors. And as I was moving along, the moment I had production finished, I cut a trailer right away. And I sent that to a new crop of distributors and sales reps, as well as the other crop that I was talking to and trying to sell the script. And that continued with each stage as I was moving along. So I was building all these relationships that when it came time to show the film, people knew about it already. And it would make it way easier for me to sell the film, to get distribution in a shorter time frame. So I did that with my executive producer, Danny Simeone, and then my attorney, Ron Miranda. We were making all the calls ourselves to all the distributors and sales reps, and then got some really good offers. Like we ended at the end of the day, like three of the bigger distributors of, of these films that range from like, 2.5 million to like 20 million. Um, we're looking to distribute the film and take it out there. And and that was a really awesome certain like situation to be in. And we chose the distributor that we thought would do all the things we wanted to, as well as not um, rake us over the coals with expenses. That's really fascinating. It sounds a little bit like what Jeff has talked about in the past, which is you kind of built your own little fan base to take, uh, carry along with you, which makes me curious about what your next steps are. Uh, you know, last deals um, more or less done, I would I would imagine. So or what new projects are you working on? Yeah. So um, fortunately, from all those interactions, I now use them on my next film. So I I already have a decent amount of people that know about my next film, which I'm on the second draft of. So I'm on the second draft of my new script, which I'll be pitching in less than two months. And I have a crop of people in one of the major studios interested in that film. So um, that one right there is is a lot more action. Uh, right now, the title is Kill 49. And it's about a retired hitman who uh, finds out the person he thinks killed his family and he goes to avenge their death. Um, and, and yeah, so that's the next project. I'm pretty stoked about it. I finished the first draft about uh, a few weeks ago. It looks pretty good. It needs help. All first drafts do, um, or at least mine. And, and now I'll do the second draft, which will address a lot of those problems. And then it'll be a readable second draft. And I'll send that out. I've never been afraid to send projects out there when they're not, fully finished. As long as people know where you're at in the process and they can see it, like you don't want it to send out something completely shitty that's so far off the mark and they have to imagine all these things within it. If it's if it's close enough, that can be good because a lot of these people will read it and then have their own ideas 
And then they're taking agency in the project, which makes them more invested. It makes them want to be a part of it. And when, and when you say sending it out, sending it out to what, studios or, or investors or actors? Correct. Or? Both. Um, not so much investors. So more studios and distributors. Because what you're looking to do when, when, when you get into this region, and I think it, it falls true with a lot of films, but especially in the world of, of low budget. And I'm talking not last deal, low budget, but like the next level um, where you have names attached and stuff like that. The way those are always working out, or for the most part, is you're basically getting money at different stages of that project, whether it be from credits from from state tax incentives or first money for actors to bring aboard to give you equity to then get your picture greenlit for the rest of the dollar amount. So I'm sending out the, the script to distributors, uh, not so much sales reps, but distributors and studios and uh, in a sense like production companies that are funding projects or would get in early on um, and be a part of that film. So I think this would be a great thing for filmmakers to to understand. I want to unpack this just a little bit. So when you are reaching out to a distributor or a studio, um, are these are these contacts you already have? I mean, are you approaching people cold? And if so, is it coming from an agent or a manager? How, how does that, I guess I'm wondering how you're actually you know, getting their attention. Yeah. So it's coming from contacts I already have, like that that example I gave you prior, gotcha. as well as cold contacts. Because now that I have players involved, I can now go to the cold contacts and be like, and just be very short and just be like, hey, and respectful and be like, hey, this is what I have, this is what I'm doing. I have um, interest on this and I'm looking to make it at X time frame. And people are pretty receptive and like, not always, you know, you sometimes need a manager or an agent and I don't have a manager or an agent right now. Um, it's sometimes for director producers like myself that that get their own films made. It, it sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Um, but I would like to have that agent or manager that has other doors that we can use as well. And that's kind of where I'm, I'm heading towards right now is is to have that extra person in my corner to open more more doors. But, you know, for the most part, like being a, a, a director producer, there, there's a lot of hustle involved in doing that. And a lot of like, like making connections and, and talking to people because you're getting your film made. And it doesn't, from what I've seen, it doesn't change from your low budget $50,000 film to your $20 million film. You're always still cobbling money together and, and getting people on board. It's always the same problem, just at a different level. <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. So one last follow-up on that, because I am curious about this. So if you get a distributor interested, would it prevent a studio getting interested? I mean, do do those two entities, would they work together to finance the film? Or is it going to be one or the other? A distributor is going to give you the money so they can distribute it? What's How does that puzzle, how do those puzzle pieces work together? Yeah. So a lot of times the studio wants to be the only one. Um, like... Like the funny quote is the one I was talking to, they watched the movie back in October, November, um, and 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 they liked it then. And we had some meetings about what I was doing next. And I was like, hey, do you, I asked kind of the question you did. I was like, hey, do you need anything in the front? Do you need me to bring like equity in or anything like that? And they were like, hey, we're X, Y, Z. We don't need your money. <laughs> so interesting. That was, really, that was really nice to hear. However, the same time, <laughs> the same time you're like, 
They're like, it does help if you can bring talent in. So whatever, whatever packages it up as fast as possible that makes it the most attractive. So I have a distributor. This is, we'll go into your example. I have a distributor or a few that will put up the money for my talent. And there's a list of talent. Um, I think Tarantino has like a video of this going viral right now from like 10 years ago or something like that, where he's talking about the list. There's a list of talent for these films that um, people will plug in. You've seen them. Like how, how many Nick Cage, Bruce Willis films have you seen in the last five years? A lot, right? Right. Yeah. So there's that list. They have pre-seals. I have the distributor that will put up the money to get XYZ talent. I then have XYZ talent attached. I go back to the studio and be like, hey, I have this talent who's also on your list attached that I can bring in. Does that work with, well, I wouldn't attach them before I talk to the studio. As I'd, I'd ask me like, hey, does this work with what your, your, your model is? They say, yes, great. Get that first money to attach that talent go back to the studio to do the rest or the studio would be like, Hey, you know what? Just, we don't really need the distributor since you already have the attention of the person we can put it in them. We can fund it ourselves. But a lot of times these agents and managers aren't reading jack shit unless you have the money to make an offer, um, or to have a holding fee or something like that. And, and, and then it goes right down the line of, of, of you can then from that point, once you get that first money, you have the actors attached, you can go down the road of saying, I'm going to shoot in Louisiana because um, the tax incentive is like 25%. And then you get somebody else to come aboard that will put up the money that you would get back in your tax incentive. And then that tax incentive goes directly to them when you're done shooting. It, it, it's a whole big line of, of how you can do this. And there's no right way or wrong way. Um, just the, the main key is just keep going and, um, and, and, and make the best film you can. That's, that, that's where you see these situations where you see like weird casting. Um, and you're like, Oh, why do they cast those people? And well, they casted those people because that's who was on the list and that's who was available at the time. Um, that's the, that's the nature of the business is you're not always going to get the cast that the audience thinks you should have had or wanted, you're going to get the cast that's available right now because you're shooting in six weeks. Right. Well, where can people find The Last Deal? Yeah, sorry, I went off on a tangent. No, 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 I think that's great stuff. That's really interesting because um, I know, you know, when I'm talking to young filmmakers coming up, they always ask, you know, how do you put that puzzle piece together to get movies made? And it's, it is, it is a, it is a puzzle for sure. Yeah, for any, any anyone making a film under let's say five hundred thousand, finding an investor other than a family member or a dentist is so is so di- impossible. Um, you're basically gonna have to do it yourself. You know, you're gonna have to find the resources, find the credit cards, find the personal loans to do it yourself, and know to keep it at a certain dollar amount because that's the business side of the of the whole equation. You gotta keep the film at a certain dollar amount because when you do get distribution. You will get an amount coming back to you, but you want to make sure you recoup. So, you know, that's the nature of the thing. You don't want to go too far that you're spending too much that you can't recoup. Um, right. So that's very important for, for people to keep in mind. And you want to make sure you get good deals that you're not paying too much in, in expenses that your distributor or sealed rep are taking. 
And where can uh, people listening yes. to the show, you know, where, where can they find The Last Deal? Where can they watch it? Yeah, so The Last Deal is on Amazon, Vudu, Google, Apple, all the platforms. Um, you can watch them in any one of those. It's also on Stars right now. So you can stream it on Stars if you have Stars. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think it's just on those ones right now. Well, that's awesome. Well, uh, Jonathan, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, sounds like you knocked it out of the park with uh, the last deal and, and have a lot of other projects in the works. So we wish you the best of luck with all of those and definitely keep us in the loop. Um, you know, when you get started on your next thing, circle back, we'll have you on the podcast. We'll chat some more. Absolutely. Thank, thank you guys. I appreciate your curiosity and having me on. It's, um, it's so incredibly helpful to help spread the word. Absolutely. Well, you take care. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Filmmaker Mixer podcast, a podcast created and hosted by filmmakers Jeff Stolen and Andrew Lamping and produced by Jeff Weber. Our theme music was composed by a man you can count on during the zombie apocalypse, Stephen D. Bennett. Make sure to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on and stay tuned for future episodes.